HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. This week, Meet and 3 is taking you to market and all over the world, from Newfoundland to Tunisia. A lot of us think of, you know, the British Empire trading things like spices and sugar and silk. But you write that it actually began with salt cod from Newfoundland. (laughs) There was a port closure in Tunisia, which was horrible. I mean, it was months, boats just setting on the water waiting to go and they couldn't go anywhere. And we'll learn about how markets have changed, whether because of their customers or the climate. A few years ago, something around 10 years, it was totally different. It almost manifests itself to almost smelling like an old fire pit. When you Mm -hmm. put it out, it has that sort of charcoal-y smell to it. It's not good for wine. Join us this week on Meet and 3 for our global market tour. And don't forget to subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Luke Griffin, and you're listening to Bushwick Podcast, local stories for a strong community. Each week, we take you behind the scenes of the artists, activists, and entrepreneurs whose journeys collide in Bushwick, a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. This is our season finale, and we're thrilled to close out a summer of Bushwick stories by partnering with our friends at the new community media project, This Bushwick Life. Together, we sat down with an artist whose work captured Bushwick at one of its most defining moments, the early 80s, during which time she lived many lives, from disco club kid to Bushwick public school teacher. But through it all, she was one thing more than any other, a photographer. Acres and acres of city blocks were bulldozed over, and there was a tree there, and, I, and the, light, the light was just so beautiful. I said, boy, Ansel Adams would have taken that picture. So I just had to sign out of school because I had to sign out for safety reasons to go outside. And I took that picture. This week, we're stepping into Bushwick's past with an intimate conversation with one of the community's longtime chroniclers. It's Thursday, August 15th, and this episode is called Disco Era Bushwick. As the 2010s turn to the 2020s, Bushwick is rapidly changing in nearly every aspect of life here, from housing to food to business to culture. Four decades ago, as the 1970s turned to the 1980s, the neighborhood was in another defining moment of transition. Coming off the 1977 New York City blackout that saw Bushwick beset by looting and arson, the community began a long recovery 
and a transformation that would see it become the place it is today. Perhaps no one captured more of the early years of that moment than a photographer named Meryl Meisler. My name is Meryl Meisler, and I'm an artist, I'm a photographer, but my big connection to being here right now is that I was an art teacher in Bushwick from 1981 to 1994, and during that time, I photographed what I saw, and... I thank goodness I did because it's it's reputed or it's been said that I have the largest known collection of photographs of Bushwick in the 80s. We sat down with Meryl to learn more about the journey that brought her to Bushwick and the defining moments that she and her camera helped capture here. When that journey began, Meryl was far from the neighborhood, a kid growing up on Long Island. But photography was already an important part of her early life. I've come to realize that my interest in photography seems to be genetic. My dad, Jack Meisler, a printer by trade, he was an excellent photographer. He was always photographing important occasions in our family life, whether that was a house being built or a birthday or a birth or new dogs, you know, whatever it is. And, and he also photographed I've come to find his work earlier in his life. You have his family, his friends, his his a woman who is dating, who ended up becoming my mother, and my dad, Jack Meisler, has a great eye and a love of photography. My father, my father's father, Murray Meisler, was a machinist by trade. I literally only saw my grandfather, Murray with a very serious camera in his hand and a light meter, and it was usually in your face. And so it was a norm that photography is something people did as part of something they do as part of life. It was natural then when Meryl started taking photos of her own at a young age. I got my first camera when I was seven. I believe I was seven. It was a little, little adventure camera, it was called. And and I think I was seven because my baby brother looks like he's around a year old in the pictures. And I started photographing the things I did throughout life, which was family, friends, people on the block, school trips, things like that. But as she describes it, she didn't start seriously photographing until grad school at the University of Wisconsin. I didn't start to seriously photograph until I was already out of college, undergraduate school, and I, my undergraduate degree was in art education, and I was deciding what to do, not to do, and well, with a teaching degree, you have to get your master's anyway, so I, I did go on to get my master's, and I thought, well, where I was going, University of Wisconsin-Madison, I met some people who said they would have a good photography program, I thought, well, okay, I'll learn how to use a good camera. So I bought my first 35 millimeter camera and read the directions on the plane and jammed the camera. And that seems to be an ongoing theme of life. Despite some early mechanical mishaps, Meryl went on to develop her own intimate relationship with the camera, not just as a tool, but as a kind of extension of living. It became more even than an art form, something she would later describe that felt as natural as breathing. I bring my camera like I'm putting on my pocketbook or 
brushing my teeth. Uh, not all the time, everywhere, but when I do, it's just an extension of something I'm doing. It's, um, I've come to realize that I don't use, I very, very rarely go to take photographs. I've always taken photographs where I was going. So it's like someone who hums or sings to themselves. When Merrill returned to New York in 1975, it was at a dynamic moment for the city. On one hand, New York was in the grip of a mounting crisis of debt and dysfunction. But on the other, the city's nightlife and club scenes were experiencing an incredible renaissance. And the coming years saw revered punk and disco venues like CBGB and Studio 54 become cultural touchstones. Like other young people at the time, Merrill dove in. I was in my 20s. Um, just like anyone who might be listening, if there's you hear about something that's fun, that's opening, that's happening, you, you check it out. As a budding artist, she took the opportunity to capture the unique energy of the time. A seminal moment was February 1977. I was taking a photography class on bookmaking, because I always wanted to make a book. And the person leading it is a photographer named Bob Edelman and he invited me to go to something on Valentine's Day at the Copacabana called the Coyote Hookers Masquerade Ball and Coyote stood for C-O you know how it's spelled cast off your old tired tired ethics it was literally a party organized by like a union of uh, sex workers. And the head was Margot St. James. And I brought my camera. I dressed in my Girl Scout outfit. And disco was the music of the day. You know, it really, so it was the, the scene everywhere. And it was a really wild party that I photographed and was part and enjoyed. The more time she spent and the more pictures she took in the clubs around Manhattan and elsewhere, she found herself becoming increasingly integrated into the social scene itself, making friends that opened new doors. I went to Mardi Gras because I was invited by a photographer who liked my work, Michael Michael Smith, who saw my work when he was at a show at ICP and traded and invited me to go to Mardi Gras. And then I was seeing a real insider's view of Mardi Gras parties and and photographing that party scene, which will, has really never been shown. Okay. And on the bus coming back, because I took a bus, I met somebody, uh, Judy, and we, it's a, that could take hours to go into, but we s- struck up a friendship where I was wanted to photograph her for um, some men's magazines I was freelancing for. And she used to seem to be a wild, open spirit. And we did a few of those. And then we didn't, the disc, I mean, you know, Studio 54 was opening. This was opening. We, we started going to the clubs. Among the eclectic, growing crowd of venues throughout the city, Merrill found herself especially drawn to those in the disco scene. 
the disco scene, I personally enjoyed that more than the punk scene because I like the music, I like to dance, um, I enjoyed the diverse clientele. Because I was a lesbian and felt very comfortable being out and about, and and I also liked the mixed club environment. And it's very and very creative. It was, I mean, it was it was really hot, hot, hot. No joking, really hot, hot, hot. And yes, yeah, so I carried. I went to many clubs, and most of the times I photographed. It was there in the disco clubs of Manhattan where Merrill collided with people from across the city, including even icons of the era like the subjects of one of her more famous photos. This is the village people stepping out at the Grand Ballroom, New York, New York. There was, I mean, these are the real village people. And they were going to perform at Xenon, the opening of Xenon, another hot club that opened in Times Square. And and there they are, you know, there's the leather guy just doing his thing in the, what you call the, the red, he called himself the Red Indian, and in the very back is the, the cowboy and the, the police guy, and someone else was walking there. And, it, and I say, I guess what seemed, what was, I felt was, in, in retrospect, about the disco era or the clubs that I was going to, there was like a lot of well-known people side by side with me and other people like me, you know, <laughs> or and it didn't. I didn't feel like there were bodyguards around. Um, I mean, I would politely ask to take a photograph, but I, I didn't feel like people were. Well, there was always been a problem with paparazzi, but I was not a paparazzi, and and there were paparazzi. I actually, that's another thing. I, I'm always surprised. I was surprised by how well my disco photographs were received because there's a lot of disco photographers but mine have a very Meryl Meisel look and so I have a lot of a lot of pictures of village people because they just like let me you know follow them into their as their dressing room and while they're getting ready and I was nobody I wasn't working for a magazine so that surprises me she also captured more civilian moments that if perhaps less famous were no less electric this is, it actually has a title. It's uh, Send in the Clowns Performer at Le Mouche. It was a club actually near, near Chelsea in, in June 78. And there's a dancer, there's a performer. Her name is, her name was Dangerfield. And she's wearing all knit and a little bit of decals. So this is someone performing at a, a disco party. And... When you go, you know, if you go to some place like Bazaar or the House of Yesp, there are performers. It's kind of kind of feels really like now if I do go out, what I see. As she developed her art, Meryl was paying her way by working part time in an arrangement that gave her the flexibility to immerse herself in the nightlife. I didn't have a full time job. I was a freelance illustrator. I made my living doing drawings. Uh, I draw very realistically, and I did drawings of, of animals and kids and things like that for things like. The New York Times and Newsday and and Scholastic. So I was a freelancer. So I didn't have to get up in the morning. <laughs> as fun a life as it may have been, it was a challenging one to keep up. And eventually, Meryl began to search for a more stable job, which is how she found herself heading toward an unexpected place, 
somewhere she knew only by its rough reputation, a neighborhood called Bushwick. The thing that brought me to Bushwick, to the neighborhood, was that I, in 1979, I became a New York City public school art teacher because that freelance life was good and let me go out at night, but the bills came regularly and the check was always in the mail. I just needed steadier income. So Merrill began teaching art part-time at schools around the city. And soon, the full-time opportunity she'd been looking for presented itself at a middle school here in Bushwick. My background was in art education and, and I got a part-time job four days a week through a program in 79, 80, and 80, a program called Learning to Read Through the Arts, and I taught up at the Upper West Side, then the Lower East Side, and then I was at East New York, and then when I was in East New York, I got a letter at home saying that file number 489361, because that's my file number, my, my name was up on a list I was on a waiting list for a full-time job with benefits. One thing was like being a per diem worker. So no health care, no sick days, no, uh, no things like pension, anything like that. Uh, and I wanted to have the, thing, the benefits. I wanted a job with benefits. And the, jo- and the letter said, I, I was, my name is up on the list and is a position at Intermediate School 291 on 231 Palmetto Street, and you can go this day. At that point in her life, like a lot of New Yorkers, Merrill had really only heard of Bushwick in relation to the trauma of the 1977 blackout. When she arrived in 1981, she was surprised to find the neighborhood appeared to still be very much dealing with the effects. And I got off in the subway, and I'd heard of Bushwick from... that fateful night in uh, July of 77 when when the whole world heard of this neighborhood Bushwick that, that through many complications um, during the blackout, there were riots, you know, not riots, you know, looting and distress, a burnt out neighborhood, someplace I'd never thought I'd go to. So I was going to go to this neighborhood. It's like, okay, so take the subway and I get out and I did not expect to see what I saw, that it really looked like it was like the bomb had hit maybe last month and here's what's left over. And it was, most of the places were boarded up. Very, didn't see people on the street, just walked up and it, I had a a cousin who was an editor uh, for television and she was working in Beirut. And when she described what would Beirut sound like, I thought, this looks like Beirut. After the break, Merrill finds that in Bushwick, appearances and reputations can be deceiving. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. 
You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718-362-3539. While it may seem abstract to younger New Yorkers, the 1977 city blackout was, for people like Merrill who lived through it, a surreal and unforgettable experience. So 1977, so this is way before internet and you know, there's radio, there's newspapers. It was 77 and the lights went out and I didn't know if it was, I, I'd experienced a, a, a blackout going up on Long Island in the 60s, so I knew that. But the one in 77, and you, when it happened, you, you didn't know because there was no lights and I, I, Judy and I were supposed to go to Studio 54, we went, got old dolled up. In fact, we were supposed to, um, one of the owners, Ian Schrager, invited her to like go to a party, private party. It's like, well, if, if Judy's going, Meryl's going too. And, and we got a little more specially dressed up and excited to go and go, go to go outside. And it's like, the lights are out. Hmm. Go to the corner. There's no subway. You know, no lights there. Did not know the extent of anything. So got on my with bicycles and and bicycle down and all the way down i just remembered it was like the only lights you saw were headlights of cars but did not know what what was happening and went to studio 54 i remember it as being closed and not going on the door she has a different memory but we didn't go that night that's for sure it was closed and and the next day the newspapers came out it was actually and i actually photographed the next day were still not lights on where I was living in Upper West Side there were still not lights on because I was photographing during the day and people are hanging out and it was like a small town. Perhaps nowhere was more affected by the blackout than Bushwick from which stories of devastation spread throughout the city. There's a famous quote about uh yeah the, the Bronx is burning I don't want to say the, the wrong name I feel like I want to say Howard Cosell but it could be wrong but at the same time you heard about a neighborhood in Bushwick where there was a major vandalism, looting, rioting, uh, burning, uh, things, things were happening. And this is, this is a big history. It was, this, is, this was just like a peak point, one of the peak points. And so the impression I had of a place like Bushwick was like, wow, well, I'm not going there. No, I wasn't hanging out in Brooklyn anyway. You know, like, like I, wasn't going, I wasn't going there. I did go to some of the discos further out in Bensonhurst to check out where John Travolta danced and stuff like that. But, I, but my scene was Manhattan. So I didn't ex- expect it to be part of my life. And yet Bushwick became very much a part of her life when she arrived here for her new role as the art teacher at Public School 291. And Merrill found that the image of the neighborhood that had been burned in her imagination was quickly replaced by a truer one. So when I came to Bushwick, I was, uh, what I saw kind of reconfirmed the reputation it had, but then I got to, you know, be there and like, you know, you're, you're with kids, kids are kids, you know, and you're with other teachers and you're, you're 
you just go on with the you know the challenges of keeping your classroom in order and <laughs> classroom control and and the the kids were friendly you know most people you know ninety nine point nine percent of the world are really nice people and and I started seeing sweep things happening so it changed very quickly because you uh, the scariest thing about a strange place is that it's strange you not be there but you put yourself there it's like it's just people though she'd taken a hiatus from carrying her camera with her she was so inspired by the community that she found in bushwick that she was compelled to document it and i didn't carry a camera because i had been robbed the year before on the last day of school with my camera in the east in the lower east side and but then i started seeing beautiful things happen as I walked up down the subway and I wanted to carry a camera. So I got a point and shoot. And I started photographing, like, you know, kids making, uh, playing basketball. You know, you know, it could be a boarded up building and tie, flat your tires all over, but they were jumping for joy. So those were sort of things I started photographing, things that I found uplifting, interesting, nice. You know, but, but then again, and this is in retrospect. I didn't know till later, decades later, that I knew that I was looking for things that were positive and uplifting because I think about it. I mean, I was there to make a living. I did not want to be get totally despondent and drop and quit this job because I needed this job and I wanted to make it work. And so I photographed things that I found personally uplifting. For example, even though I was there during the major, major, major uh, era when the neighborhoods were affected by crack epidemic and other things, I didn't photograph like murals or much graffiti because most of it is about young people and many that I might even know who were killed too young. And so I didn't photograph those things because I I think personally I needed to focus on on the more good things I was hearing. Or, th- well, you know, I was giving myself positive motivation and also photographing things when I saw a beautiful light or a composition or something interesting happen. So that's what I sought out with that little pointed shoe camera. The pictures she captured in Bushwick stand in stark contrast to the kind of photographs she'd taken in Manhattan's club scenes. Raucous parties and sensational performers were replaced by people finding ways to thrive in a community that had been all but abandoned by the city. Kids playing in basketball. Uh, kids I kn- some kids I know and their uncles and uh, repairing a car, repairing a car in in like a, in a, a heap of rubble, but like kind of having a picnic. Um, to look like the Italian women walking down the street with their dressed all in black. A, a minister and his son looking so dashing. Someone oh. It might be a big, big old Cadillac with a mattress on top, but the person looks very distinguished, you know, just hanging out. Or even a, a scene, a landscape. I'm usually, I'm a, I'm a people person, but the landscapes were also uh, interesting. Actually, I'm not. I always kind of knew there was gorgeous light here because the buildings are low, and. It was just really beautiful natural light, especially if a lot of the buildings were down. And so what not surprised became a, a place that artists came to. But I say, say if I saw the 
the people wrecking crews taking down some burnt down buildings and it kind of looked like an interesting moment I captured that or I saw it in a place a field acres and acres of city blocks were bulldozed over and there was a tree there and I and the light the light was just so beautiful I said boy Ansel Adams would have taken that picture so I just had to sign out of school because she had to sign out for safety reasons to go outside and I took that picture you can find some of these photos in a book Merrill published in partnership with the present-day Bushwick Club Bizarre titled A Tale of Two Cities Disco Era Bushwick It places images of life in post-blackout Bushwick side-by-side with photos from the Manhattan Club scene. It's a juxtaposition intended to explore the surprising ways that different lives in the same city can so powerfully reflect and reject one another. There's so much happening at the same time. Right now, as we're sitting, there's like... Life is not as linear. And or I don't see it that way and there are many a person is not or this person is not just fit, doesn't fit into one plug you could feel comfortable and find connections with people that you're totally different different from and similar to and and I also kind of when I look for when I say matches I try to find like similar gestures or emotions that seem to come from things so it's a visual but it's also like you know human human connections as much as the work interrogates such a specific and significant moment in time Merrill sees it as in a way timeless 40 years ago was yesterday and I, I mean I know most people living listening to this were not born in the 50s like this person is but and I know growing up thinking like when you, you hear about your parents pre-war depression era or, or in the 40s it seemed like ancient history it's not it's just yesterday and it, it's and it's tomorrow it, it's a it's a pendulum of things going back and forth and and there's a, also a pendulum of things going up and down and there's hope and I hope Hope for that comes in the next election, and I guess. But but this was also two very dis- seemingly distinct cultures happening in the same city. Ultimately, Merrill hopes these candid pictures of performers and families and club goers and students inspire something in people. I hope my f- photographs make people think and also make them laugh and make give them joy and hope. Merrill captured life in Bushwick for years and taught in the neighborhood until 1994 before pursuing opportunities at other schools in different communities. But all these years later, she remains close with some of the people she met here. Well, I'm still very close with friends with some of my art teaching colleagues and then the students who were grown up because they were in their 40s. I mean, I Someone just like found me a few weeks ago, and we had a big conversation. You know, it's like you know, on the telephone, but most of it's through social media. But but it's 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 always nice to run into people, and they and they're doing fine, or, or most or, or many are, and and 
you, you know, you, you're just a few years apart, really, a teacher and the kids, or it was just, you're not that, you're, you, it's the same time, you're there in the same time, same place, we're, we're all alive together, so we, we, we went through something together. And as she reflects on how the neighborhoods changed in the time since she taught here, she thinks to the challenges that the neighborhood's gentrification poses to the people now trying to make lives in a community that was once structurally abandoned and filled with vacant lots. Everyone's concerned about not being able to, to afford to be here or to, to sustain a life or to feel safe and to feel like you could put down roots. And, and no, I, didn't, I don't like New York. New York City is not a place that should be just box stores and franchises. It's something very special about this city. Looking ahead, Merrill suggests that her best work capturing yesterday's Bushwick may be yet to come. Working on New York City epic. It's going to come out in, in next spring. It's, it's immense. Just editing it now, and it's 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 more. It's the unseen, deeper look into Disco Era Bushwick, and also taking, looking into the school itself, life in school, and some of the really daring nightlife pictures that make me blush to look at them myself. But I I will plug, I have a, the second book, and it's, and thank you, Bizarre. Bizarre is my publisher. But there was a second, we did a second book called Purgatory and Paradise, Sassy 70s Suburbia, Suburbia in the City. And that's, that's actually the stronger book. So I hope anyone listening who doesn't have that copy yet, you can get the first edition hard copy and have a collector's item and it'll help make the next book a reality. Appreciate that. If you're interested in looking through Meryl's lens for yourself, there are a few different ways to find out more about her work. My website is MerylMeisler.com and you'll have that spelled to, to get the book Strand. I mean, it's a real, it's real Bushwick. It's real do-it-yourself style. Some with Adams Tributor. Thank goodness, Strand Books is, is hey, it does sells the books. They're the Amazon dealer, but please order from Strand. Support brick and mortar bookstores. And if you're not near nearby, you can do it online. They're signed. Uh, when get them, I'll be having some shows always happy to sign books to anyone and and it's it's a gift you know it's 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 a it's a labor of love we've got all that info and more in the show notes for this week's episode but first some closing gratitude from meryl again i I want to close out that i always felt a welcoming atmosphere in bushwick right from the start even when the principal and the kids welcome me into that crazy school. <laughs> it's crazy because junior high school is crazy. And, and there were other issues. And people, everyone who said yes when they, when I asked to photograph them or other people have come into my life. I feel very privileged. 
We'd like to extend our gratitude to Meryl, who was incredibly gracious and generous with her time, for joining us in the studio to share her memories and her work from Disco Era Bushwick. We'd also like to thank our friends at the new community media project, This Bushwick Life, for making this episode possible. This Bushwick Life was created in July of 2018 to promote the Bushwick residents, local businesses, and community organizations that make the neighborhood a better place to live, work, and visit. Their mission is to create awareness, make introductions, and strengthen ties between people in the community. No story is too small, and nobody is too cool. If you want to learn more, or you've got something to share, you can visit them at their website, thisbushwicklife.com, or their Instagram, at thisbushwicklife. We've got all that info and their contact email in the show notes as well. We'd, of course, also like to thank you so much for joining us this week and throughout the season. None of this would be possible without your support. We'll be taking a brief break before returning this fall with more of Bushwick's incredible stories. But in the meantime, we'd love to know what you're interested in hearing and how we can do better. Get in touch by emailing us at hello at hearbushwick.com or by DMing us on our Instagram page at Bushwick Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.